As we begin today, I encourage you to take out your Bible and turn over to Genesis chapter 41. So we're going to come to the end of Genesis today with looking at the third part of this character study of Joseph. And then two weeks from now, next week we'll be at Easter, but two weeks from now we're going to finish out and do the summary of the whole book of Genesis, but also to talk about unpacking our baggage, which we've been dealing with as we've talked about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so I encourage you to take out your Bible. As we, and I encourage you to take out your notes. We're going to cover a lot of verses today. I think I set a record for PowerPoint slides today. So buckle your seatbelts. We've got a lot of scriptures to look at. I don't apologize for looking at scripture, but we're going to let scriptures be pretty much the focus of this message because God's word does not return void, but it always carries out its effective purpose in our lives. And so we want to give honor to it. So Genesis chapter 41, look at verses 56 and 57. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Then look at chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Verse 6 of chapter 42. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied. To buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, Joseph said to them, You've come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, verse 13, Your servants were twelve brothers the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan, the youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Story of a Southern Baptist pastor, and uh, at the time he was living in Southeast Asia among Muslim people, and someone who was Muslim came and said to him, you know, why did God have to sacrifice his son for forgiveness? He said, in our religion, he says, I would not take your dog and have it die for me so I could have forgiveness. So that's just wrong. I don't get it. Well, this pastor answered him this way. Choosing to forgive somebody means that you're agreeing to absorb the cost of injustice of what they've done. He said, imagine you stole my car and you wrecked it. You didn't have any insurance. You didn't have the money to pay it back. What are my choices? I could make you pay. I could haul you before a judge and request a court-mandated payment plan. 
If you were foolish enough to steal my $1.5 million Ferrari, which the pastor said, I don't have one, you might never pay it off and you'd always be in my debt. But the pastor said, I have another choice. I could forgive you. And what I'm choosing to do, if I say I forgive you, I'm choosing to absorb the cost of your wrong that I'll have to pay the price of having the car fixed. You have no debt to pay, not because there was nothing to pay, but because I paid it all. Not only that, I'm choosing to absorb the pain of your treatment of me. I'm choosing to give you friendship and acceptance, even though you deserve the opposite. And he says, this is how forgiveness always works. It comes at a cost. If you forgive someone, you bear the cost rather than insisting that the wrongdoer does. And that's exactly what Jesus, the mighty God, was doing when he came to earth and lived as a man and died a criminal's death on a wooden cross. That's what forgiveness is. There's a cost and someone has to pay it. So every believer is responsible before God to respond biblically to the injustices of the world, the bad habits, and the family dysfunctions that affect our lives. We don't choose who our family is. God does. But in the course of growing up, some of us in this room, we have faced abuse. Some may have had an abortion. Some in your family may have had an abortion. We've had things happen to us that are cruel and cause issues in our life. And God says we need to find forgiveness, but we also need to process those things and work through them and not develop a victim mentality. Because we're dealt a bad hand at birth with the sin nature, none of us are exempt to respond to God's message of salvation and forgiveness that brings radical change in our lives. Some of us in this room were predisposed toward anger. Some of us in this room are predisposed to abusing alcohol. Some of us are predisposed to pornography or same-sex attraction or a life of drama and turmoil because you want life to be all about you. And on and on the list goes. We're all guilty. My premise today is that what do we do with those predispositions in light of God's word is what we must be concerned with. The world answers to these things, for the most part, leave us short of dealing with the root cause of the problem in our life. Anger management classes are great. You can learn a lot. Alcoholics Anonymous is a great organization as well that helps a lot of people. Weight loss programs are great. But what are the issues that cause us to act out in abusing things in our life? Some of us in this room, if we're honest, we're locked up with anger and bitterness that may have been there for many, many years. And you're looking for the way out so you can be happy and be filled with joy once again. On your outline, <clears throat> just to review where we were, just to remind you that Joseph, at about 17, was sold into slavery by his brothers, as you know. They became a slave. Potiphar bought him, and he was the slave to Potiphar and his wife. He was over all the slaves. Then Potiphar's wife wanted to commit adultery, and he fled from the scene, and he was falsely accused, and he was put in shackles in prison. Then as a result of, of two dreams by the cupbearer and the baker, and Joseph interpreting those dreams, and then to go on to interpret two dreams by Pharaoh, he moves from being a slave to the supervisor and second command of all of Egypt. So let's catch up with where Joseph is in this story as we bring it home to conclusion and application to our lives. The first thing you see on your outline is the seat of power. The seat of power in Genesis 42 and 44. 
Notice, as we talked about last time, that when he was exalted to be second in command, he was given a signet ring by Pharaoh. This represented the power of the office that Pharaoh delegated to Joseph. The robe and the gold chain represented the rank and the status and office. The position of his chariot, second in command, would be like the vice president, have a limousine. He would be just under the president. His entourage would go before him like our secret service, clearing the way for him to go to places safely. Joseph was given the Egyptian name that meant the God was spoken and he will live, or the one who knows. And then Pharaoh gave him a wife, and his marriage was into the inner circle of the Egyptian priest that presided over the most important ceremonies of Egypt and supervised all the priests of the land. Joseph was in great company, a second in command of the most powerful nation on earth at that time. So we see under this point that Joseph's brothers reap what they have sown so long ago. Sin always has a way of coming back around on you, like a boomerang. At some point, it's going to catch up to you. Joseph's brothers reap what they have sown so long ago. Joseph, as we read in the scripture reading, recognized his brothers, accused them of coming to spy out the land of Egypt to find its weakness. This is their first visit. And Joseph said that they should send one of the brothers back and bring the youngest brother, Benjamin, back to prove they're telling the truth and prove their innocence. He placed them in custody for three days. And then we pick up the story. Look at Genesis 42, verse 18. On the third day of their imprisonment, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. Notice what they said in verse 21. They said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. In verse 24, Joseph turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them, and he had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. The brothers head home. They're upset. They're dumbfounded. Notice in verse 21, they go back in their minds to the guilt that occurred over, you know, many years ago when they sold Joseph into slavery to the Ishmaelites. The guilt was what they did to their brother. And now they believe they were going to have to face their punishment. It must have haunted them in their minds to think that they had deceived their father, Joseph, into thinking Joseph was dead as well. Lie upon lie, injustice upon injustice to cover their tracks. Well, back to the story. They head home, they open up the grain bags, and they check the bags, and they see inside the very silver that they took to purchase the grain is in the top of each bag. Jacob mourns when the brothers explain to him what happened in Egypt, that Simeon is there bound until they bring Benjamin, the youngest one, back to be with them. And so what would you do when confronted with this situation? First, Jacob loses Joseph. Now your second favorite son is 
at risk to die or be put into slavery, never for Jacob to see him again. Look at Genesis 42, verse 35. And as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were scared. They were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, you've deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. And trust Benjamin to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. Notice the showing of favoritism there. And if harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Notice about Joseph's tests. These tests were very important in God's plan to bless the seed of Abraham. God planned to bring the family to Egypt so that they would grow there to be a great, vast nation. But it was necessary that as the people came down, that they would be faithful to God. It was necessary that the brothers be tested before they could participate in God's blessing. So Joseph's prodding had to be subtle. The brothers must perceive the hand of God moving against them so that they would acknowledge their crime against Joseph and their previous unbelief in his dreams. But one test was not enough. There must be another one. Visit number two. And it's interesting, if you read through the story of Joseph, all the twos that occur throughout that story. Well, visit number two, it wasn't until all their food was gone that Jacob consented to Joseph's request. Time had passed. Look at chapter 43 of Genesis, verse 1. Now the famine was still very severe in the land. And so when they had eaten all the grain they brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly. You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down because the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Verse 6, Israel asked, why do you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know? He would say, bring your brother down here. Verse 8, then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety and you can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him, before, set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. So a long span of time goes. Simeon is in prison. And Jacob is being stubborn because he doesn't want to lose Benjamin. In verse 11 there, it says, Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift, a little balm, a little honey, uh, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Verse 13, take your brother also and go back 
to the man at once, and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. And as for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Jacob comes around to reality. They're starving. They've eaten up all the food. There's no other option for him. And he feels boxed in. Joseph, when they arrived on the second time, Joseph has a steward prepare and invite the brothers to a lunch. They confess to the steward that they found the money that they brought the first time to pay for the grain in their sacks when they got home. And the steward said that their God had provided the money for them and he brought Simeon out of prison. And so they clean themselves up and they gather and they meet with Joseph. And of course, it was detestable for Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. So they met, but then initially they separated as they ate. And Joseph had Benjamin receive five times the food that his other brothers had received. Takes us to chapter 44. Joseph had a steward put the silver in each one of the brothers' sack of grain as they got ready to go home. And then Joseph took his personal cup of silver and made sure it was put into Benjamin's bag of grain. Well, he sends them on their way for a short distance. He sends his steward and soldiers and they catch him. They open the bags and they see not only the money in the brothers' uh, bags, but they see the cup in Benjamin, in his bag, the personal cup of silver that is Joseph's. Well, they go back and meet with Joseph and Judah speaks and begs on behalf of the brothers for mercy and for him to stay there in prison, not Benjamin. Judah knows his father will be so upset and maybe even die if they don't take Benjamin back home to him. Finally, Joseph cannot restrain his emotions any longer. The next point on your outline says, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers in love and not wrath. Love and not wrath. He couldn't contain himself any longer. Even though they had mistreated him so badly, Joseph loved his brothers dearly. Look at Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Verse 4, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years, now there had been a famine in the land. For the next five years, there'll be no plowing and no reaping. Verse 7, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you and your children, your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there in verse 11 because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Can you imagine? Have you ever been in that situation where you're just overcome with emotion? 
because you're with a loved one or a family friend or someone you hadn't seen for many, many years. And Joseph just literally wept in front of their faces. And so he couldn't continue to play games with his brothers. And so the brothers finally go home and Pharaoh and Joseph provide carts to go back and to bring all of their belongings and their livestock and Jacob and his family as well and, and bring it to the region of Goshen. In that same chapter in Genesis 45, we see that wonderful uh, uh, knowledge that Jacob has that his son, Joseph, is still alive. Look at verse 24 of Genesis 45. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. There's the big brother speaking to the little ones, right? Don't fight along the way. So they went up, verse 25, in Genesis 45, and went out of Egypt and came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's a ruler of all Egypt. And Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Jacob, known as Israel now, Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Think about it, this royal invitation to Jacob. The old patriarch near the end of hope and to the ten brothers burdened with guilt. It was a turning point in their lives and the fulfillment of God's prediction in Genesis chapter 15, that they would go into isolation in a foreign country and multiply without losing their identity. In Genesis 15, we see that prophecy way back when we were going through the first quarter of the book of Genesis. It says, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants, Abraham, will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. We could preach a full sermon on just those verses. But do you see the providence and the hand of God? And how he's working behind the scenes. He's waiting for the Amorites, their sin to rise to the level. For the Jews to come and take over the promised land. But first they would have to go through over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And this was told to Abraham. God is working throughout our current world and throughout all time in history to bring about his will and kingdom work. Don't ever forget that God is in the background of your life and my life working when we can't see it, when we can't figure out what he's up to until finally he reveals his plan to us. A lot of times God's will is hindsight 2020. We can understand when we look back and we see his hand all along the way. But sometimes in our current situation, we don't understand where we're going or what we're doing. Can you imagine the anxiety and discouragement that Jacob was feeling as he waited and he waited and he waited for the brothers to come home the second time with Benjamin and Simeon? Then can you imagine the joy and elation when all the brothers came home to share that Joseph was alive and that he was the second in command of all of Egypt and he wanted Jacob to come and to see Joseph and live in Egypt in his care? That brings us to our second major point. Hope you're still tracking with me on this. The second one is selecting forgiveness. 
This is the real interesting turning point of the story. This is where the cycles of dysfunction get broken. Selecting forgiveness. Jacob's comes down with all the extended family, with their herds, their belongings, and settles in Egypt. What a joyful reunion he had with Joseph. Look at Genesis 46, 29 sometime. You see the reunion there with Jacob and Joseph together. This group of people set up their homes in Goshen and lived there until Jacob died. And then we pick up the story in the last chapter of the book of Genesis, chapter 50. The brothers and Joseph all go back and they take Jacob's body back to where he was and they mourn and they bury him and the period of grieving ends. And then they all, the entourage, returns to Egypt. But now the brothers are very worried about their future. You see, they felt safe and protected while Jacob was alive because Joseph was going to honor what his father's requests were. But now it was just them and Joseph and they were on Joseph's turf. They would now have to play by Joseph's rules, completely dependent upon him. We see the brothers repent. The brothers repent. After years of guilt, after years of being reminded of how they mistreated their brother. Look at Genesis 50, verse 15. Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Verse 17, this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father, and then when their message came to him, Joseph wept. Joseph wept. The brothers repent. Second of all, the brothers begged for mercy. This is the fulfillment in verse 18 of the dream that Joseph had. The two dreams, in fact, where they would bow down before him. In verse 18 of Genesis 50, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. They begged for mercy. And then the brothers received grace and mercy from the hand of Joseph. The brothers received grace and mercy from the hand of Joseph. Look at Genesis 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And here's probably the key verse of the whole book of Genesis. Verse 20 of chapter 50. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Notice he said twice, don't be afraid for emphasis. Don't be afraid. And verse 21 says, he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Joseph in his heart had forgiven them. He understood now, looking back, what they meant for harm, God meant for good, to carry out his will through Joseph. Man, the level of maturity that was going on in Joseph's life. And through all the suffering, Joseph could see now God was preparing him for this specific time and this moment to take care of a need that only he could fulfill. To not only save the Egyptians, but the known world from starvation, but specifically the future nation of Israel to fulfill the promise of going into the promised land. What an amazing turn of events. 
And it shows you the power of redemption and forgiveness. So at the beginning of this Holy Week, as we reflect on the events leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, we've seen the story of creation and perfection in the early chapters of Genesis. We saw sin in Genesis 3. We see redemption and forgiveness throughout the book of Genesis. And so today, instead of giving you three questions to ponder as we apply this to our lives, I've given you some uh, life response statements for you to dwell on and think about. What do we learn? What are some things we could take from this story? First of all, God always rewards faithfulness to himself. God always rewards faithfulness to himself. That's why we've been emphasizing is no matter how discouraging, no matter how depressing it can get, we just hang on to God. In Isaiah 49, verse 15, God said this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she is born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. God can never forget who you are. He created you. He made you. He made you unique. You're special to him. And remember, no matter what happens, no matter if your prayers you feel like are bouncing off the ceiling, if everything's going wrong and the bank account is zeroing out, God is still there for you. Remember that the righteous will never be forsaken by God. David said this at the end of his life in Psalm 37, I was young and now I am old. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken, forsaken or their children begging bread. God will always be faithful in his loyal love to you. Another key application, a life of integrity by a believer will be respected by the world. Will be respected by the world. In the 13 years that I was involved in working in the secular world and management, I can't tell you how many countless times people would come and ask advice, not because of how great I was, but because they knew that I was living a life of integrity and I was trying to live for the Lord. And even though their life was a shambles and all kinds of problems, they wanted advice. They wanted counsel. In 1 Thessalonians 4.12, it says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Joseph had a reputation of integrity that was recognized by Potiphar, by the captain of the guard in prison, and now Pharaoh. And probably none of those were believers in Yahweh and Jehovah. But Joseph gained their respect and favor, and God blessed them as God blessed Joseph. They were blessed because of who Joseph was, and they wanted to know what to attribute the blessing in their life to because of Joseph. So what kind of reputation would we find if we talked to your boss or coworkers at work? How about you as students? What would your classmates and teachers say about you? Would we get a good report on your integrity from those outside of the faith? This is a goal to strive for so that people might see Jesus in us so we can point them to him and say, this is the reason for the faith that I have and who I am and the integrity and the things that you see in my life. A third thing we can see is that no one can outrun their sin. I want to remind you of that and keep that in mind. I just watch the news every day and you just see the ridiculous things and sometimes the heinous things that occur. And I just think in my mind, how do people think they're going to get away with that? 
No one can outrun their sin. In Numbers 32, it says, but if you fail to do this, God says you'll be sinning against the Lord and you be sure that your sin will find you out. In our Connect group, we talked about, I won't go into it, but you can look up Charles Kuralt, K-U-R-A-L-T. He used to be a CBS correspondent. And when he passed away, his wife found out when they opened the will that he had a whole other family that she didn't know anything about. And he was a famous correspondent. We've read recently about Ravi Zacharias, the Christian apologist, and the sexual abuse that he was involved in that his family knew very little or anything about. Your sin will find you out. And then man's evil ways can be used by God for his glory. That's what's so amazing. Sometimes what people think they're doing to harm us and to bring pain and suffering into our life, God has a way of taking and accomplishing great things through it, even through natural disasters, even through tragedies that occur, like we've experienced this week in Boulder and other places. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 19, I remind you, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, am I in the, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. As a believer, we need to hold on to those truths. And then we need to be reminded that we're responsible for our own lives and our choices. As I said, we have choices. And I, I feel sorry for people who've gone through abusive upbringings or been involved in other things that have affected their life and, and the consequences still continue to this hour and God will forgive and he will remove the guilt and the shame but sometimes we have to live with the consequences of those decisions throughout our life. But God says, hey, instead of being a victim, come to the cross, receive forgiveness, the removal of the shame and break the cycle for the sake of your family and the next family and the next family and the generations to come. It's up to you and I to break the cycle of past history and sins in our ancestors' lives. Joseph came to that place. It was Abraham who lied about his wife. It was Isaac who lied about his wife. It was Jacob who was the deceiver by his first name. And Joseph was not a deceiver or a liar. He chose to follow God and break the cycle of sin in his ancestors' life. So the choice is yours to be a victim and perpetuate sin in your family's life for generations to come, or to stop and say enough is enough, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, I'm tired of being a victim and let other people put me down. It's a choice that we have to make and God will help you process through that to get you to that place. Sometimes it's not very easy, sometimes it's difficult. This is not an easy way out, easy answer by any means. And then remember that forgiveness frees all involved. Forgiveness is the, one of the best things about Christianity. Forgiveness frees all involved. One, if not the hardest thing we can do as human beings, is forgive someone who has deeply wronged us. There's something in our nature that cries for fairness and justice when we are mistreated, when we are hurt, when we are wounded. And for some of us, if we don't get it, we get angry. And then that can grow into a deep, bitter root in our soul. And I admit, it's very, very hard, apart from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus living in your life, to forgive people at times. 
But Carl Menninger, who was the famous psychologist who said that if he could convince his patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, he believed 75% of them would walk out of the psychiatric ward the next day. There are so many people who are in bondage because they can't let go of the baggage in their life. Past unresolved conflicts, filled with pride, filled with bitterness, filled with desire for revenge. And on April 11th, we're going to talk about unloading the baggage in your life. In Romans 10, Paul says it this way, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Hebrews 12, 15 gives us this uh, encouragement, this admonishment. It says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Remember, Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the beautiful thing about Christianity is that not only does Christ remove the guilt from us, but he removes the shame as well. Nothing else on earth can do that. The last thing I'll say today is this, is Joseph's life is a picture of Christ's redemption and forgiveness. He's kind of a type of Christ. You can see the pattern throughout the story. Joseph suffered mistreatment and injustice innocently. Joseph forgave those who hurt him the most. As well, focus in on Good Friday this week. Jesus died on the cross innocently. He asked God to even forgive those who beat him and those who nailed him to the cross, the Roman soldiers, the religious leaders. Joseph's suffering was used to put him in a position of authority to bring redemption for the world at that time by saving their lives through his skills at overcoming the famine. Jesus died to redeem us, to forgive us, to provide a way to break the chain of habitual sin and dysfunction we inherit from our families. And then he was exalted to God's right hand of authority. Jesus provides us the capacity not only to be forgiven, but to forgive ourselves and to be able to forgive others as well. This can only be done with the agape love that's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 3 through 5. Love is patient, love is kind, and all those things. Agape love. And the capacity to forgive is summed up in Ephesians 4.32. Paul said, be kind and compassionate to one another. Why? What's the purpose? What causes that? Forgiving each other because just in Christ Jesus, God forgave you. As God has forgiven you, I don't think there's anyone in this room here today that would be glad to have God put all of our sins and roll them on the screen. We'd run out of here as fast as we could, right? But we think about what all that God has forgiven us, and then how can we not forgive someone else? Thomas Edison, he was working on a crazy experiment called the light bulb, which we have plenty of those in this room, and thankfully Danny changes them very faithfully. And so as he was discovering the light bulb, he had a team of men that worked 24 hours down in a basement to produce one light bulb. Well, after the end of 24 hours of hard work, Thomas Edison called one of his young men who were working on the team. He says, take this upstairs to the people up there. 
So this young man was holding his light bulb and, you know, trepidation and fear, and he's watching the steps, and sure enough, you know what happened. He tripped at the top and dropped the light bulb. Well, Thomas Edison, without saying a word, turned to his men. He says, let's make another one. And they worked for 24 more hours. And guess what he did? When the light bulb was ready, he called that very same young man to carry that bulb up to the upstairs to safety for use. That, my friend, is what true forgiveness is all about. God has forgiven you completely if you know Christ and has decided to live with you, within you and I and give us each and every day a second chance and a third chance and a hundred chances. We're entrusted with his message as his ambassadors because we are forgiven. May we show the same grace and mercy toward others that Christ has shown to each and every one of us. May we forgive ourselves since there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our key thought is this, the one who created us, who loves us, who provides a way to resolve any conflict in any relationship by the power of the cross. Think about that. The cross is the final word. The cross is what makes the difference. The cross is level at the base. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, young or old. You come there, and it's the answer to all of life's relational problems. So as I think about that, and look at your life. Are there areas of your life that maybe you're holding on to bitterness? Maybe there's a relationship that over the years that you've never really reached out to a family member and resolved. Maybe it's someone who has passed away. I would encourage you to go home today and sit down and write a letter to that person as if they were alive and pray over it and then burn it or throw it away and receive your forgiveness or grant forgiveness to someone that you've been unwilling to grant forgiveness to. Let's bow for prayer. We've looked at a lot of scripture today, but I wanted to see the narrative and how the story unfolded in the very words of God. I'm just so grateful, as I've said a couple times, how God includes all the faults and the difficult situations as well as the blessings in people's lives because if we're honest, all of us can relate to these things in our life in one manner or another. Maybe you're here today and God has been challenging your heart about a relationship that needs to be restored. Whether you need to go and tell that person they've offended you or that you need to grant forgiveness to them. Just take a moment, and I encourage you to ask God to show you what next steps you need to take in order to receive or grant forgiveness and to remove the anger and the root of bitterness in your heart. Father, I'm grateful for this healing passage of scripture, for the picture of Christ and his redemption, for your willingness to see our plight of sin as we've entered this world with a sinful nature, that you are willing to come from heaven and wrap yourself up in human flesh and live a perfect life and to die on the cross 
as we reflect on this week and shed your blood so that we could have forgiveness of sins. Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And that by coming to you and turning away from our sin, repenting and asking you to forgive us of our sin because of the price paid on Calvary and then to come into our hearts, you give us that hope of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life and abundant life on earth. And I pray within the sound of my voice, if anyone has not received you, that they would pray and ask you to forgive them and come into their heart today. I pray for my brothers and sisters here who know you, Lord, that you will help them. If there's something in their relationships around them that they need to deal with this week, that God, you will prompt them, that you will help them to be obedient to your spirit and to be released, either by granting forgiveness or receiving forgiveness. Lord, we come and we just uh, thank you that you're an awesome God of grace and mercy and love. And we want to continue to honor you as we sing today. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.